we are going to continue this morning in uh, the Word of God. And so if uh, we always worship together and then we open God's Word together, if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to get it out and open it. If you don't, um, if you have a phone app or something like that, I'd encourage you to get that out. We have a free Wi-Fi here, uh, Family BC. You can connect and check that out. Um, and read along. I always encourage people to look at the word themselves because I don't want you to say, well, Bill said it, so that's true. I would much prefer uh, us to look at the word together. And then maybe you will say, hey, I didn't see that or I saw this other thing instead. And so um, those things you can offer, would love to, uh, to, we'd love the dialogue together about. Um, we're doing a study in the book of 2 Corinthians and uh, we did First Corinthians a few years ago now, and so we're kind of finishing up this Corinthians series in this series called Life Together. Uh, we've been talking about this kind of, I feel like the book has been a roller coaster of emotion and experience with Paul and the church, um, and I've been kind of experiencing it with him. I'm not sure if you have or not. Um, these realities that like life is not perfect, you know, even though we want it to be, the church is not perfect either. We have hurts, uh, um, things change, we need to forgive one another, all these kind of lessons of the church. And um, then last week, Paul kind of concluded with the idea of having, having an open heart. He says, open, our hearts are open to you. I would hope you would open your hearts to us as well. So Paul's looking for a reciprocity in relationship. He's looking for a dynamic of it's not Paul over the church. You know, a lot of times we'll have churches and they'll be called like St. Paul. We have one here in Highland called St. Paul. And, and the funny thing about doing that with, with, with the, the followers of Jesus is we put St. Paul up here and all of us peons down here. But it's interesting to me that last week we heard Paul say in the letter of 2 Corinthians, I have opened my heart to you, and so has Titus and Timothy. I hope you would open your heart to me. Because I don't believe that Paul saw himself as, he saw himself having authority as an apostle, but not as some kind of better than anyone else. As a matter of fact, we're going to hear in this book how Paul kind of declaims his own uh, righteousness for the sake of Jesus Christ. He says, I am no better than any of you, but I know the truth of the Christ. And so Paul is kind of um, encouraging the church, and I would say encouraging us to have open hearts and minds toward what God can do. We sang those songs this morning in worship, and every time we get to the third verse, I always want to make it a we verse. Um, you can't, because of copyright issues, change the verses of the songs from I to we, but I love that the community journey, the journey seems to be from individual faith to communal proclamation that we believe God can do more than we could possibly ever do without him. As a matter of fact, Emily prayed that today. Without God, we are doomed to die alone. And so we have this opportunity to then uh, open our hearts to one another, but open our hearts to God. I mean, first, first of all, um, I remember several years ago, some of you maybe this morning, I felt like the sound was a little hot today. I feel like the room's a little hot, meaning the mic is hot. Um, and uh, um, I remember several years ago, there was a little book put out to the churches called Worship Wars. And it was trying to wrestle with the idea of should we have pipe organs and pianos or drums and guitars? <laughs> and and uh, someone actually wrote a book to the church saying, hey, let's think of what we're doing here when we worship God. Um, having an open heart to God is something of, of what we do in our worship. And, and one of the questions that came out of that book um, for me and some others is, and it's still something that we hold in tension, I think, that all churches probably do, is when we gather together to worship, like this morning, we're here not primarily to hear a, uh, a message from the scripture, not primarily to sing a song, but to worship God together, to like have our hearts open to what God would have for us in our lives. 
And so the question is, when the church gathers, because the church is not a building but a people, do we come together to uh, worship God? And I think the answer is, well, yeah, of course, right? Or do we come together to invite others to draw near and come to know Jesus? And that might sound like a weird thing to say, but there's been a dichotomy amongst the church. No, we're just going to come and worship God, and if people want to join us, great, and if they don't, that's fine too, right? Or we only come together to get people to come to know Jesus, and we're not really here for any other purpose. But as um, our dear friends have taught me over the years, my, my brothers and sisters in Christ, it's both at the same time. That these worship wars are not so much about uh, what we want, but, but worshiping God and inviting others to come to know Jesus themselves. Well, maybe I should ask a question before I get that far down. Do you think that the church is um, the place for holy people, or do you think the church is a place for sinners come, to come to know Jesus, a Savior? I, I think it's both. I think our call is both, and today, that's what we're going to hear from Paul. This is one of the harder texts. There's several coming up, but this is one of the harder texts in 2 Corinthians for me, and I'm going to talk about why as we get into it this morning. But who are we called to be as believers in Jesus? Um, I'm going to invite you to do what we always do, uh, pray um, that God would give us wisdom and understanding as we come to worship him today. Uh, Father God, we proclaim, and I say that that's why we've come, to worship you, to proclaim your good news, to sing songs about your son's death and resurrection from the dead and his salvation to all who would believe that we, sinners though we are, are invited to come to you and repent and believe the good news of Jesus Christ. That in a mysterious way, Father, we died in Christ's grave and we are raised new life right now and then life forever with you in heaven. And so, Father, for that truth, we give you thanks and praise. And we pray this morning that as we come to examine your word, the scriptures, and, and hear your teaching, that we would have a spirit of openness to you, that you would be our teacher. We have, very, we have no interest in, in worldly wisdom or, or the words of man, but we have an infinite interest in hearing you speak. And then, Father, lastly, as we come in here, individuals in this place, may we be mindful of those in our lives that we can invite in who you have proclaimed salvation over already, despite the circumstances they may be facing. And so may we have faith, the faith of the apostles, the faith of believers to pursue you Teach us today from your word. We ask you to do this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to go ahead and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. And that's where we stopped last week. We're going to pick up right there. And we're just going to start with a couple of verses here out of chapter 6, um, 14 through 16. This is what the word says. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Bilal? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and of idols? We are the temple of God. And so Paul starts, he, he moves, and I want to remember the context from this thing. He says, have open hearts to us, we have open hearts to you. And he moves immediately into this passage that we know pretty well. We may have heard before. How many of you have heard this in your life? Don't be yoked together with unbelievers. Yeah, almost all of us have heard that. 
And the funny thing is that most of us have heard that in the context of marriage. As a matter of fact, the time that people have most often asked me questions about this verse is when they're considering marriage. And they'll say something like, how big of a deal is it if my boyfriend or girlfriend doesn't believe in Jesus? Should we get married or not? But the funny thing to me is that if if you're reading the text with me, marriage is not mentioned anywhere in this passage. Now, I'm not saying that marrying someone who doesn't have faith is a good idea. But I think it's interesting that we have relegated this text to mean marriage only. You read that text out of context, you say, don't be yoked together with unbelievers. You go, oh, I married a believer, so I'm fine. Or maybe, as the case with me and my wife, she married an unbeliever, but I became a believer, and then a pastor, unfortunately, right? <laughs> I'm kidding. And, 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 and now she's like, I'm fine. But, but I think it's interesting to see that when Paul says, what's Paul writing to when he says, don't be yoked together with unbelievers? Uh, what case has Paul been making throughout the entire letter? I would argue that he makes this, the case that I love you. I proclaim the gospel to you. Don't change us out for some who don't believe. I think he's making a, convers- a, a point to ask the church to not be bound together with those who have no faith. So can we apply this to marriage? Yeah. Is it the primary application of the text? I don't think so. I don't think so. Look at what Paul says. Don't be yoked together with unbelievers. The the word unbelievers there is better translated. It means unbeliever, but it means the faithless. And and, and the word being yoked, it, it literally means like oxen yoked together, but it also means to bind yourself to someone right? There's this idea that if you bind yourself to someone who's not going the same direction, you're going to go in circles, right? You're going to drive them in circles, they're going to drive you in circles, but you're not going to go forward toward a goal. Um, But there's one more word in here that's kind of hidden in NIV, and the word is be. Don't be yoked together as if it's a one-time thing. But that's not how the Greek reads It says, do not become yoked. Do not become bound together with those who are faithless. And I think that's a lot wider warning than don't marry someone who doesn't believe. It's to say, in our lives, I mean, does it apply there? Of course. Marriage is probably the most intimate binding anyone will do with someone else in this life, except, hear me now, for the relationship with Jesus Christ. Our relationship with Jesus Christ is tighter than our marriage. But of of that, in this life, the relationships we have, we'll have dear friends and things like, you know, family, mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters, children. But our spouse, the choice relationship with our spouse will be the most uh, intimate and perhaps painful um, relationship to be bound into with someone who does not believe but is that all? What, what about uh, being bound together with a, a coworker who doesn't believe? What, a, what about being a bound together with a friend who doesn't believe? Or, or what about even more abstractly, being bound together with a theology that doesn't profess faith in Christ? Or how about being bound to an atheology? I typed atheology in my notes, and you know what it told me? That's not a word. I'm like, but it's a thing. Our whole culture proclaims a theology, not a theology, but atheist theology. 
There's no God. That's the proclamation. And so then all of a sudden, I have to wonder, as a church, are we binding ourselves, meaning the church individual people, with those who do not believe? How about a philosophy of unbelief, of unfaithfulness? Or how about a movement of unfaithfulness? I wonder, in our lives, are we careful about the things that we bind ourselves to, or more importantly, perhaps, the things that we are becoming bound to? You see, I don't think it's always a a willful decision that we just go, I'm going to bind myself to this thing. But I think it's almost like where we get drawn into being bound to something that's not of God. And you know how I know? Because it's not of faith. (laughs) Anything that has to do with God is going to require faith. When Paul says here the word is pistis, it means faith. And, 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 And faithlessness is apistis, apistis, which is the lack of it. And so we can get drawn in like a cocoon, like this, you know, the spider says to the fly, come in, come in, it's fine, you're fine. And you begin to get tightened up and you find yourself bound to faithlessness. I think that this wider warning uh, is much more challenging to the church when he says, don't become bound. Paul wants us to bind ourselves to one person. As a matter of fact, that person said to himself, my yoke, that's the same word here, my binding is easy and my burden is light. That's Jesus Christ. Bind yourself to him, I think is Paul's asking. And because we believe in him, bind yourself to us in the gospel, in faith. So are you careful about who you bind yourself to or who you become bound with? The people around you or the places that you work or spend time or maybe um, affiliations you have? clubs you're part of. I'm not saying we can't have a life where, you know, uh, but we ought to have an awareness that we're being drawn in. Paul goes on here to give five examples now. Look at the text with me. Five examples because he wants to flesh it out a little bit. He asks these. He says, what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? That's the first. Righteousness versus evil or wickedness. What fellowship can there be with light and darkness? So those are opposite things. We sang songs about that today. What harmony is there between Christ and Bilal? And the word Bilal here is a reference to an Old Testament um, uh, God, little g God, that's worthless. Just unpack that for a minute. What, What harmony is there between Christ, that's the anointing of God, the presence of God, and Bilal, worthlessness? It could also be translated as evil. What does a believer, that's pistis, have in common with an unbeliever, apistis, of the faithless? And then lastly, what agreement is there between the temple of God and the temple of idols? That last one kind of sums it up, that in these areas of our lives, that these contrasting things, but ultimately, ultimately, Um, The temple of God, the place where God dwells, has nothing to do with the place where idols dwell. Notice where he's going here. And you, church, are the temple of God. Our, Our plural, meaning individually, the temple of God, collectively, the temple of God. So he's making a point that we ought not become bound with the faithless as believers in Christ. 
Why? Because we who believe in Jesus are the temple of God. Then reading on here, um, for we have, we are the temple of the living God. Oh, one more thing I want to mention before we move off from this. So I want you to notice some other words here in the text, in verse 14. This is the words that Paul uses to describe those five areas that are kind of like this versus that. And here's what it says. Having things in common or community, uh, fellowship, that's like a breaking of bread, a spending time, uh, harmony, and then uh, common again and agreement. So those four things Paul kind of points out as as being signs that we're being bound to something. Things in common, having things in common, having fellowship with one another, having harmony with one another, and having agreement with one another. And he says we don't have agreement with those who have no faith. So do you realize that if you have faith in Jesus Christ that you are, I want to stress this for a minute, God's holy temple. This is where this is hard <laughs> for me. That because I believe in Jesus, I, my person, my spirit, my being, am the place where God dwells. N- not a temple you go to, not a, a building you walk into, but a living, breathing place that God lives. And, and that idea is going to lead into the next idea that Paul's going to unpack here. Look at what he does, verse 16, the second part of verse 16. We are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, come out of them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. 7-1. Since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves with everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. And I just go, oof. That's such... Now, maybe y'all are like, what's the problem with that verse, Bill? That verse gets me. What? Since we have these promises, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates the body and the spirit, perfecting holiness. Here's what I want to say, that as believers, we ought to long for holiness. We ought to long for holiness. We should long for holiness. We're going to talk about why. Let's walk back through. Paul quotes here three different passages, but it's more than three references to these Old Testament promises. I want you to see that in verse, uh, chapter 7, verse 1, Paul says, since we have these promises. So because of these things that God has said and done, let us do this work. So I want to get to the first part of that sentence by looking at the, the places where he pulls these um, Old Testament promises from or First Testament promises from. The first is this. I will be, I will live with them, dwell with them, and walk, listen to the word, among them, be in their midst, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. That is actually from the book of Leviticus, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. And those references, I looked them up because I want to know, well, now what is God talking about? Because I get to the end there in 7-1, it says, you know, like, long for holiness, and I'm like, our, uh, bring perfection and holiness, and I'm like, how are we going to get there? Listen, Le- Leviticus, 
God becoming, God being with his people and his people becoming his people is this. In Leviticus, God says, when you come into my temple and you worship me, when you obey the things I've commanded, I'm going to bless you. That's what it is. It's a willful obedience to God, an, an invitation to come and worship, and God's response of being worshiped is to bless his people. Now, I already get uncomfortable because I don't want it to be a quid pro quo, like I worship you so you owe me. That's not how it works because God knows our heart, but if we come together to worship God and we're voluntarily obedient, he is pleased to pour blessings out. That's what Leviticus says. That Leviticus is the book of the law, right? The book of Levi, how about in uh, Jeremiah, my favorite prophet, Jeremiah? There in the context, it says this. Israel's feeling hopeless about what's going on. They've been cut off from God. And, and, and things are being destroyed around them. They have not been willfully obedient and worshiping God. And Jeremiah gets a word from the Lord, and he says, the Lord says, despite what is happening right now, I will bless you. And to a hopeless people, he says, I will restore you, says the Lord. You can look up the reference in Jeremiah. Um, let's see, it's Jeremiah uh, 32, 38, where, where God says, despite what's going on, I'm going to keep my, what does Paul call them? Promises, my promises. And then the third place that first promise comes from is Ezekiel. And it's basically this. Ezekiel says, there's coming a day when there will be one king of kings and one people of God. And the king will be over the people. And so there's coming a day of fulfillment of the kingdom where we will be ruled by Jesus Christ. That's the New Testament interpretation of that Old Testament passage that Ezekiel's proclaiming a future state. So because God's going to walk among us and dwell among us and restore us even when things are hopeless, then what's the second promise? Therefore, because of that, come out and be separate, says Yahweh, says the Lord. Come out of the world. This comes from two places, the prophet Isaiah, and it's when the Lord says, I'm going to return, I'm going to bring my salvation, and I'm going to deliver you from the world of sin. So, so this is where I start to struggle because I'm like, okay, wait, are you telling us to come out like of our own volition? But Isaiah is definitely about the Lord says, I'm gonna come back to you and I'm gonna save you and I'm gonna call you out from all parts of the earth, my people to me. You will return. It doesn't sound, it sounds like a response to God's favor, the coming out. The second place is in Ezekiel, the same similar idea of deliverance where it says, in that day, a future date, I will gather from all the nations my people, and because my people are called out of those nations, here's what the word says, I, God, Yahweh, will be proved holy. It doesn't say that my people coming out of all the places will be proved holy. It says, because my people come out of all these lands, all the diaspora, to me, I will be proved holy. What, how does that work? As I, th I think and pray, it seems to me that it's his holiness that's saving people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. I can't unpack that a whole lot except to say that if we know Christ, it is for the grace, it is because of the grace of God that we've come to know him. That there's no self-righteousness. But we are then called out from the world. Come out. 
Now third, to compound it. Here we go. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. That sounds like quid pro quo, right? You do the good thing, I'll let you come to my house. You wipe your feet on the mat, you can walk inside. If you're good enough, you can get through the door. But look at what it says in 18. I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Now, this actually is recorded, um, let me find out where it's at here in my notes, in 2 Samuel and the funny enough, there's two verses in 2 Samuel that reference for this, but the one verse is only for who is speaking, the Lord Almighty, and the second verse is for the call of King David, the anointing of King David. And, and, and David is told, touch no unclean thing and I will receive you. I will be your father and you will become my son. And so that promise that is made in the Old Testament to King David, Paul says here, since we have, these, we have these promises, that that promise of sonship or daughtership or childship applies to all whom God is saving, that we become the children of God. Why is it important that it would be who speaks there? The Lord Almighty, Paul says. That's the Lord of armies, the Lord of power. Again, I can't help but read that, the Lord of armies, and say when it says touch the unclean, unclean thing and come out, that God's not like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. We should long for holiness. Paul says that we have these three promises of God that will be adopted as his children I don't know if you ever had the experience of like kids coming to the house when they're dirty. <laughs> You're like, not, do not, do not come in. Do not. Sit, stop it, right? Stay outside, do it. You know, I usually say, your mother's going to kill me. That's what I say, because I say, come on in. Oh, no, your mother's going to kill me. You track mud all over the house. But what do you do whenever you tell that kid to stop outside? Do you go, hey, figure it out. Whenever I was a kid, I came to my uncle's house one time. We'd been riding four-wheelers. We were covered in mud, head to toe. We had a time of our lives. It was wonderful. It was like kind of cold out, and the mud was sticking everywhere, and it was great. So we get to my uncle's house, and he goes, da 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 Stay right there. So we did. You know what was next? The hose. <laughs> you know? This morning, I, I gave Nico, I want bacon. I want bacon. I said, okay, you can have bacon, dude. Greasy fingers, eating bacon, you know. He gets done. He's just got it every, he's going to touch everything. I'm like, God, stop. Stop. Your grandma's going to kill me. <laughs> Stay here. And I went and got a rag. This is all true. And I went back over and I was like, wink, 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 wink. <laughs> you know. <laughs> I was like, woo. You know why? Because the father cleans him. Right? God's not like, make yourself holy and then you can come into my house. He's like, don't touch any unclean thing. You're going to be my son or daughter. I'm going to invite you in. I'm going to clean you up. And you're going to be part of the family. Listen, you're not going to be rejected because of something you've done. But as those who know Christ, we begin to long for holiness. As a matter of fact, Paul says something here. He says, since we have these promises, dear friends, in the NIV, and I want you to know that dear friends is a beautiful word of scripture. It's called beloved. Beloved. Therefore, let us, beloved, purify ourselves from every defilement of flesh and spirit. Defilement means the dirt. 
The word, if you get into the root of it, means blackness, the darkness of soul and flesh. Let us purify ourselves. And then the second part is, um, let us perfect holiness in the fear of God. And I'm like, that, I just get stuck. I'm like, wait a minute, we have to perfect our holiness? What does that even mean? But again, the perfecting, the word perfecting means the completion of what God has started in us, right? I said to you last week, there's that funny word, it's like a synergistic word with God, that we participate with him, that he invites us to do it with him, and that he does it with us, but as much with us as, as for us, as much for us as with us. Well, here we have the same idea that basically Paul is saying, the thing that God started in you, long for it to completion. The word holiness there means perfection. Our perfection means a completeness of this holiness of God in our lives. Why? Because of the theophobos, the fear of God himself. Fear doesn't mean terrified, but it means respect because he has called us. So we stand in tension then. We cannot be wholly apart from Christ, and yet in Christ, we long for holiness. Let me say that again. It might have been confusing. We cannot be holy apart from Jesus Christ. There's no, I got myself clean enough. I'm going to come in the house now. Dad's like, no, you don't. I'm going to wash you with Jesus, and you can come in. But also, when we're washed with Jesus, we ought to long to not be dirty again, to touch no unclean thing to be pure in spirit and in flesh. And I don't know if you're like me, but that is an impossibly hard place to stand, believing always in Jesus, that we can't do it on our own. So I wonder in your own life, do you long for holiness? Holiness, a lack of dirtiness. Do, do you struggle with falling short or missing the mark? And I wrote that question, and I thought, that's an unfair question because everyone does. I don't know anyone ever in my life I've asked, do you struggle with missing the mark? Or that's what sin's called, missing the mark. And they've said, no, I hit it every time. It's, it's a broad question. All of us struggle with that. So what, what's the solution then? We're going to wrap here. We're going to read a bunch of texts. We're going to just touch a few places in it. Picking up now in verse 2 of chapter 7. Paul goes this way, make room for us in your hearts. That's kind of where he started before he started talking about these things, right? The holiness and, and all that. Make room for us. Okay, he says make room for us is all he says in the Greek. In your hearts is implied from the previous text, fair enough. We have wronged no one. We've corrupted no one. We've exploited no one. I do not say this to condemn you. I've said before that you have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. I love that passage right there because it's like ride or die. Like we're in it, thick and thin. This, this does start like marriage verses, right? No matter what, through, rich, through uh, richer and poor, in sickness and in health, we're in it together. He says, we would live or die right beside you to the Corinthian church. Paul says this, I have great confidence in you, verse four. I take great pride in you and I'm greatly encouraged. In all our troubles, my joys know no bounds. So Paul's like, no matter what's happened, it's all been worth it because we get to know you and you've come to know Christ. Verse five, when we came from Macedonia, this body of ours had no rest, but we were harassed on every turn. Conflicts on the outside and fears inside. Here's the words, church. 
but God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also the comfort that you had given to him. I want to stop there and just talk about that idea real quick, right? Paul writes, and he's like, all the struggle has been worth it, right? And he's like, um, we have all these wars outside of us. People are fighting, and, and things are happening. They're beyond our control. But I think it's funny that when he says the fear is located inside. See, it's not fears outside and conflicts. It's conflicts outside and fears inside. Sometimes the things that are in us are real, genuine fear, right? And sometimes the conflicts in us aren't, or the fear in us isn't real at all. It's a procedure, maybe something from the past that we're hanging on to. People around us are fighting. Things are loud. And, and, and Paul says this, in the middle of all that, the chaos outside, the fear inside, two words, favorite theology of the Bible, but God. See, the almighty God, Yahweh, the Lord, the creator, the one who spoke the worlds into existence, the one who knit us together in our mother's womb, that God comforts those who are downcast. Comforts us, Paul says. Well, how? By the coming of Titus. I told you earlier in the text, he said, my Titus, my brother. <laughs> like, he double-mied on Titus. Like, that's an intimacy. He's like, but God, in my hour of need, in my downcast time, brought Titus to me. And not just Titus, look at verse 7, but also that you had comforted Titus on his own journey. He told us about your longing for me, Paul, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. That's good. Paul's like, it's been a great blessing. He's going to go back now to something we covered in chapter 2. Read this with me. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter. Remember Paul said, I wrote a letter of tears to you. I wrote a letter that was so painful to write. Right Now he references again, even if I cause you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. What? Though I did regret it, meaning in the moment, I see now that my letter hurt you, but only for a short time. Verse 9, yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led to repentance. I told you that back in verse 2. Like, how could Paul write this letter that grieved the church? But he is excited, and I told you this was coming, that he's excited that the letter that he wrote through painful tears, let me tell you, the hard conversation that Paul had with someone that he deeply loved, the church, he, he really struggled with how to say, what to say, what not to say, but he's overjoyed now because the things that he said didn't lead them to agree with him, but led them to repent of the behavior and that repentance, we'll find out, leads to salvation. Because my letter of sorrow brought you to repentance. Because you became sorrowful as God intended and so were not harmed in any way. This is the conviction of sin, by the way. I'm going to unpack this in a second. But this is why the conviction of sin in our lives is a good thing. It's a godly thing. Verse 10. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regrets, but worldly sorrow brings death. So Paul says there's two paths in life, right? And, and, and it's grief, the path of grief. 
You, you, you maybe have heard of things like a grievance committee, right? A complaint box, um, something that's wrong. And, and, and honestly, I don't know, again, if you're like me, but it's hard to hear, you know, like confrontation or, or bad news. It's hard to hear someone call you out. It, it's hard to be discovered. And yet, Paul says this, that in the godly sorrow, there's a pathway that leads to no regret. Here's what the path is for godly sorrow. This is what he says. Godly sorrow leads to repentance, and repentance leads to salvation, and salvation leads to no regrets. Meaning, no matter how bad it was when you got called out, no matter how bad whatever was discovered was, if we repent of our sin, and that means to turn away, and just to make a clear illustration here, that what we have is we have a sin that draws us near, and when we repent from the sin, the things we're bound to that are not of God, we turn away from the sin, and automatically we turn away from sin. You know what's there? God. Because <laughs> they're the opposite ends of the spectrum. And so repenting from sin means we turn toward God in that moment, and turning toward God leads to salvation. I heard someone say to me this very week, they said one of their favorite things about, uh, there was another pastor in the community, actually, we were all meeting together, and he said, one of my favorite things is when you read the scriptures, the idea of salvation is almost always future tense. You are saved, you've been saved, but you will be saved. It means in the middle of the struggle, in the middle of the, the brokenness, we are being redeemed. Repentance leads to salvation. And then Paul says this, and if, because it sounded kind of brash when he said, I don't regret that letter. Like, really, Paul? But when he says, I don't regret the letter because it led you to repentance and salvation. So of course not. I regret it, and you shouldn't either, and I don't. I'm saying me personally in my life. I don't regret the times I've been called out because it's leading to my salvation. I'm saved, I've been saved, I will be saved by the grace of God. Through what? Godly sorrow and repentance, godly grief. But there's another path he lays out here as well, right? He says, uh, that's the one. Here's the second one. Uh, worldly sorrow, that's, that's a, a sorrow just in the flesh alone, you know, brings death. The end. That's it. Worldly sorrow brings death. Again, just to put a point on it, we prayed that earlier. God, without you, if we're on our own, we're doomed. Doomed to die and die apart from you. Now, Paul's going to unpack here, we're going to run through these, what that godly sorrow brought, what he saw in the Corinthian church that looked like godly sorrow. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you, verse 11. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves. And I don't think he means clear yourselves, like justify yourselves, like, I don't want to do that anymore. I want to stop that. What indignation about an accusation what alarm. It should scare us when people, when things are found out, people call us out on things. There it is. Here's our word. What longing. <laughs> it's not how it ought to be. What concern. And then lastly, what readiness to see justice done. That this, these things are signs of godly repentance, earnestness, eagerness, indignation, alarm, longing, concern, and justice that we long for a just world. Can I take just one second and unpack that idea that that's a sign of godly repentance, of belief? That, that many times there is the, there's a mantra in the world, justice, justice. 
But many times we want worldly justice, a pound of flesh. Here's the truth. What God has delivered in Jesus Christ is eternal justice, justification, that we could be forgiven our sins. Paul says that longing in you is a sign of godly um, grief, repentance, salvation, right? Verse 12. Oh, let's see. No, uh, back up. Let's see where we're at. Yeah. At every point, it's verse 11 and a half. At every point, you have proved yourselves to be innocent of this matter. So even though I wrote to you, it was not on account of the one who did the wrong or of the injured party. And you remember both, he was asking for them to show love in this letter to those people. He's still talking about an incident that happened. But rather that before God, you could see for yourselves how devoted to us you are. In other words, that this causes us to examine ourselves. That if, if, if whether someone says something that's right or wrong, it ought to cause us to pause and examine examine our life, to think about what we're counting on for salvation. By this, we are all encouraged, verse 13. In addition to our own encouragement, we are especially delighted to see how happy Titus was because his spirit had been refreshed by all of you. I had boasted to him about you, and you have not embarrassed me. But just as everything we said to you was true, so our boasting about you to Titus was proven to be true also. And his affection for you is all the greater when he remembers that you were all obedient, receiving him with fear and trembling. And I am glad I can have complete confidence in you. That's a strange thing to kind of end that on. But I think what we see is Paul binding all these relationships up in Christ. Everything. He's like, we're on the same team. We're trying to do the same things. And we ought to love each other. We ought to be uh, together in all this. And he kind of uses Titus as an example of that, right? Bind the community together, himself, the Corinthian church, and my, my brother, my Titus. So I wonder, in our own lives, how do we respond to hardship, our sorrow, our challenges, our accusations? Do we respond with a repentance and a godly sorrow? Or do we respond with something else that leads to death? The truth is this, that like the apostles, like the early disciples, we are called out of this world. In some ways, we don't fit because of the gospel. But here's the other part of that, that the reality is that those who don't fit are drawn into Christ and into the church. I've had people say to me before, like, I don't belong. And it's like, you're invited in. <laughs> We're at the door, dirty. It's like, stay there, wash, come in, you know, sit down, have some cocoa. Um, this is the invitation that we have in Jesus Christ. This repentance that leads to salvation. I want to say to you today as we close that none of us, I will say, especially here at Family Bible, but hopefully no Christians anywhere are proclaiming ourselves to be righteous. We're proclaiming Jesus to be righteous. And yet we get to invite others like we were invited into his family. So I don't know if you know Jesus like that. I don't know if you've, made a decision to just trust Jesus and continue to trust him. But I'm gonna invite you to pray with me and you can do that today. Father God, we thank you so much for the truth that you are the God Almighty, the God of power, the God of order, the God who makes this chaos make sense. I pray, Father God, that today we would have an eye and ear toward you, that we would be just looking and listening to what you might have in our lives. And Father, I pray that if, if, um, 
if we've trusted you as Lord and Savior, that we would continue to trust you with everything, that whenever we do see things in our lives that don't fit, don't belong, that we would examine them with holy eyes, that we would see what you see, and that we would lean more on you for our holiness and our full repentance, Father. We thank you so much that you don't leave us to our own devices, (laughs) that you love us too much to leave us alone. We thank you, Father, for your Holy Spirit's urging to return, to come home, to get cleaned up and and, uh, hang out with you. Father God, um, for that, we give you praise and thanks for this journey of holiness, uh, for the conviction of sin. And then, Father, again, I, I say this like through grief, but there are those who just don't think they fit. And uh, I find that really offensive because uh, you made all of us. Uh, you made all of us for our spot. You made all of us in our situations. And you made all of us because you love us and you want us to come home. I pray, Father God, that we would just return to you, that we would... Uh, and godly soul, repent and, and just turn and see what you might have for us. Would you do that work? Would you invite us, Father, uh, in to your home? We ask you to do this work in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.